Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Nabil and Andrew are your hosts today, and this is our extended holiday special. And what better topic for fireside chat than bacterial taxonomy? There has been a lot of discussion about bacterial taxonomy with the recently announced changes to phyla, and this has revealed a lot of misconceptions around taxonomy in general. So one of our guests, Professor Mark Palin, approached us to try and weigh in and set the story straight. Joining him, we have a very exciting and esteemed panel to discuss this meaty topic. We have Professor Phil Hugenholz, who is director of the Australian Center for Ecogenomics at the University of Queensland. We have Professor Ian Sutcliffe, who is a professor of microbiology at Northumbria University and chair of the International Committee of Systematics of Prokaryotes. And Professor Mark Palin, who is a professor of microbial genomics at the University of East Anglia and research group leader at the Quadrum Institute. So let's start right at the beginning. How did all of this taxonomy business get started, Mark? Taxonomy started, as we know it now, with Linnaeus, who is a a Swedish doctor and a Swedish naturalist who looked at nature and could see what he considered a system of nature, a natural system out there. And, And he devised a hierarchical system of classification for plants and animals where groups fit fitted within groups in a very tidy fashion and devising that system of taxonomy was one of his great achievements the second great achievement was that he also overlaid over that a system of nomenclature and he swept away a lot of the very confusing approaches where people described things in sentence long description and his his key achievement was that he came up with the so-called Linnaean or Latin binomial as a way of describing species, which uh, we still honour today. So we, we call uh, humans Homo sapiens, we call uh, bacterium Escherichia coli. And, and so this was Linnaeus's great achievement. And we, uh, by and large, stuck with the approaches that Linnaeus laid out in terms of taxonomy and nomenclature since then. Linnaeus was actually quite insightful though. He didn't just look at superficial things. He realized that you had to look more deeply. And so he he actually realized as he went along, he said, well, you know, bats are not birds and whales are not fish. He realized that they both belonged with the mammals. And it wasn't just a single characteristic like, oh, they fly and they've got wings or they've got uh, fins and they swim in the sea. He he was able to, to realize and even included humans in his grand taxonomy. In a sense, great achievement there in laying out a framework, but he also set us a problem because what what was the reason for all this apparent system in nature? And for Linnaeus, he basically, he actually, he wasn't a modest man. He said, God creates, 
Linnaeus classifies. He basically saw himself as, you know, God's right-hand man in, in actually revealing the creator's hand in nature. But it took another hundred years or so for a British naturalist, Charles Darwin, to come up with an explanation for this, this system of nature. And, and Darwin obviously came along with the theory of evolution by natural selection. Within his theory of evolution, he, he came up with an explanation for patterns that Linnaeus had seen. He said, these are not just arbitrary patterns. I mean, if you look up in the night sky, you can classify stars into constellations, but they don't mean anything. They, there's, no, there's no deeper meaning to them. They're just arbitrary gatherings of stars and so forth. Darwin said, no, this stuff we're seeing in the classification of nature actually has some real meaning. The real meaning, meaning is lines of common descent. So Darwin came up with the idea of evolution, the idea that things change, that the biological world changes over time. But he also came up with the idea of a branching evolution. And, and, and he led heavily upon the, the, the simile of a tree and described the evolution as like a tree. So let me just quote him, because I always like to quote Darwin. So he said, basically, the affinities of all beings of the same class are sometimes being represented by a great tree. I believe this simile largely speaks the truth. As buds give rise by growth to fresh buds, and these, if vigorous, branch out and overtop on all sides, many a feebler branch. So by generation, I believe it has been with the great tree of life, which fills with its dead and broken branches the crust of the earth and covers the surface with ever branching and beautiful ramifications. So this idea that there's a tree and that things branch out, that, that was a great innovation of Darwin. But Darwin also pointed out, well, actually what this means is that classifications have to be genealogical. And so that was his key point. He said that basically he, that, that as we go forward, all true classification is genealogical. What we'd say now is phylogenetic, all true classification is phylogenetic. But Darwin was the one that made that clear that this was the explanation and this was the goal of, of, of biological classification was to recapitulate those phylogenies. Darwin got it right, but most of the people following Darwin didn't quite get it until the middle of the 20th century when a guy called Willy Hennig came along and said, actually, look, listen to this, that the goal of classification is to recapitulate the branches on the tree of life. It's not to sort of work out whether a thing has a particular, reached a certain level of complexity or has some particular salient feature. And, and, and this has been described as the, as the battle of, of, of grade versus clade. So you can't have a thing called fish. You can't have a taxonomic group called, called fish, according to Hennig, because some fish are closer to humans than they are to other fish. So if you want to use the term fish, Pisces, as a, as a, you, you have to include humans and, you know, all terrestrial vertebrates in that as well. And so this, that, that was a, a big change, a big sea change in taxonomy in the 20th century. And it's interesting if you look, though, Hennig had some big arguments with a guy called Ernst Meyer, who was one of the, 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 the godfathers of, of, of bacteria, of evolution in the 20th century. But Hennig won, basically all taxonomists now go with, with Hennig rather than look at these kind of grades. And then the last person to mention is Woese. So Carl Woese was the one that brought all this into bacteriology by showing us that we could look at molecules and we could look at the, the sequences of genes in particular. Uh, he didn't start with sequences, but he started looking at, at the RNA uh, fragments. But then he showed that you could classify bacteria 
using sequence-based approaches. And, and he came up with similar kind of insights. So he said, you know, if we look at lines of divergence, things like mycoplasmas, they're just one small branch within the gram positive group. And, and, and the key point was he said that there was no such thing as prokaryotes, uh, that bacteria and archaea shouldn't be joined together, they should be separated. That's me just giving you a very quick whistle stop introduction. So Mark, I, I taught that I spent a decade working on prokaryotes. So what on earth has gone on there? When did it change? Well, it, it changed in the sense that when you look at the assumptions of cladistics, as Willy Hennig said, you, you draw branches and you look at how the branches fit together. And it is one of the assumptions of, 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 of cladistics that you can't have tripods. You can't just say these, these three things branch out equally. You have to draw a line and say these two branched off first. And what we know is that eukaryotes are closer to archaea than they are to bacteria. So to group bacteria and archaea together, that goes against the rules of phylogenetic classification. So you could, I guess, you can, you can, I mean, if, we, if we're allowed to use fish, then we're allowed to use prokaryotes, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a vernacular term. It's not a scientifically accurate term. It's not a term that should be used. And, and I guess all of us have to draw a line. Do, are we going to be precise and scientifically accurate all the time? Or are we going to allow ourselves to use vernacular terms? So in one of our recent papers, we used the term non-human primates to describe monkeys. You know. So Ian, you're on a committee with the name Prokaryotes in it. So what has gone on there? Well, I guess I think it's largely a historical artifact. It reflects, I mean, it, I, it used to be called the International Committee for the Systematics of Bacteria, because of course, if I, I'm remembering my history correctly, because it predated the discovery of the archaea. And then I guess at some point along the way, when the understanding of the evolution of eukaryotes and their relationship to archaea, before that was so well understood, it was, and I actually personally believe it's still quite useful to be able to re refer to the grouping of organisms that do not have nuclei with a single term. And so, so prokaryotes as a vernacular term, I think is a good way of putting it, Mark. No, I, I, I still disagree. I, I spent time as an external examiner at Cambridge correcting questions that they were asking undergraduates because they were talking about, you know, mechanisms of DNA and RNA replication in prokaryotes and they meant bacteria. And I said, Archaea, do it completely differently from this. You, you know, please be precise in your thinking. So I think it does, in, it, it encourages people to be imprecise and, and sloppy in their thinking. Berge's manual have now gone over to calling them archaea and bacteria rather than prokaryotes, which is, I think, preferred. You know. Well, my old uh, mentor, Norm Pace, has been the main flag bearer for getting rid of the word prokaryote. So in deference to him, I have avoided using the term in titles of and usually abstracts of papers that I write, but I agree with Ian that sometimes it's a convenient way so you don't have to write archaea and bacteria all the time and people know what you mean. I, I take Mark's point that if you're using it when you actually mean bacteria, well, that's, that's no good. But if you actually mean bacteria and archaea and you, you know, it becomes kind of lumpy in conversation to use it all the time to uh, spell it out. So yeah, that's kind of, I guess I'm sorry. Well, I mean, we might as well say that bacteria are plants then, you know, that's how they used to be classified. So why don't we just call just uh, only some of them, only some of yeah, them. Only some of them.
No, no, all of them. Originally, all bacteria are lumped in as plants. So it's just, I think we've got to be more precise in our way of thinking as we go forward. Um, Ian, let's come back to you for another comment on that response to Mark and Phil. I've got to make one more point. If you're going to use the term prokaryote, people can't even decide how it's spelled. Is it with a C or with a K? You know, just dump the term. Yeah, I think we have reasonable consensus on a K, but and well, I, I'm, I'm with Phil. When I'm writing formally, most of the text that I write these days, um, including a letter I'm just drafting on behalf of the ICSP, refers throughout to archaea and bacteria rather than to prokaryotes. And and it's at the moment I think the the International Committee for Systematics of Prokaryotes, the ICSP, probably has bigger fish to fry. Than, than worrying about changing the P in its name to A and B. Be part of the baggage of history, though, won't it? Because the seed yeah. code will take over. Yeah. Well, um, one, one might argue that the bigger misnomer in the name ICSP is that it's not described as the International Committee on the Systematic Culture Prokaryotes. Since, without jumping too far ahead in things that we may end up discussing, there is a prescription at the heart of the code and nomenclature that the ICSP oversees that we can only validly name things that have been cultured and deposited in culture collections. And that is probably actually a more existential matter for, for the ICSP to be considering, and, and certainly one that it has considered recently so, I mean, I guess in terms of sort of sketching out where we are in, t in terms of what the ICSP does, I've given a number of presentations on this over the years, and it is interesting that there isn't a great knowledge of this. I mean, one of the things that I've, I've just mentioned there is that the, I the ICSP does a number of things, but its primary role, it, 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 its driving role, if you like, is to oversee the maintenance and functionality of the, in, the International Code of Nomenclature of Prokaryotes, to use the P word again, and, and that is the primary purpose of, of the ICSP. It does also have some secondary functions, one of which is that the, the uh, rules of nomenclature that are bound up in that code also require the ICSP to have a journal of record, which is the International Journal of Systematics and Evolutionary Microbiology. And so, so the ICSP is responsible for administering the, that, that journal is published by the Microbiology Society. It's actually owned by the International Union of Microbiology Societies, but it, the ICSP is the sort of third corner of the triangle that oversees the publication of IJSEM. And, and th th those are two major functions, interrelated functions of the committee. But I think that also illustrates a point that I think I wanted to make very early. One of the issues with taxonomy, and one of, I, I was going to say the cross that taxonomists bear, but I think actually taxonomists bear two crosses. One is, one is the unfair cross, this conception that taxonomy is utterly dictated by rules, and, and that is utterly, utterly false, because there is, uh, protected in the code and nomenclature, is, is freedom of taxonomic thought. One person can classify things one way. Phil, for example, can classify Rhodococcus as a single genus in the, ICA, in the GTDB. My freedom of taxonomic thought is that Rhodococcus is actually, can actually, should actually be split into several genera. For example, the, where there are rules is there are rules relating to nomenclature, and that is what is wrapped up in the in the code, the ICNP, that the ICSP looks after. I mean, the second cross that taxonomists have to bear 
uh, and indeed frequently joke about themselves. Many people, including myself, like to start published articles by quoting a chap called uh, Sam Cowan, who, who was, I think Sam might be Stan Cowan, who was practicing in the 1950s, who made a, a, a number of good pithy comments about taxonomists being their own worst enemies by making their sort of discipline area arcane and boring and, and, and essentially stamp collecting. And we do still carry that particular cross. And, and I think there taxonomists are probably guilty about not doing enough to, to shed that particular perception of their work. So Ian, how can we modernize it? Because it seems like taxonomy has trailed genomics and hasn't caught up. So you mentioned things like having to deposit cultured strains into, you know, special collections and whatever, which obviously isn't possible for a lot of the, uh, the organisms we're finding with metagenomics. And then there's a whole legacy of anyone being able to deposit anything in NCBI and it magically appearing in the taxonomy as an official species or whatnot. So how can it be modernized? I've argued in, in papers published now over quite a considerable period of time, at least pretty much a decade or so, that the way forward, and indeed I'm not alone in this, many people believe this, it's just getting it adopted is the hard part, is that the future of taxonomy is as a genomics discipline. It, my personal belief is that any information that you might need to classify an organism is encoded in its genome and there is the, the, the necessary and sufficient information to come up with a robust classification is present in the genomes of organisms and I think that way we can modernize by shedding the frankly it's, it's a conservative tendency that that sort of demands a lot of frankly trivial and irrelevant sort of phenotypic testing be done which it in its worst manifestation, and I can speak from the heart here because I, I looked up this morning as editor-in-chief of Anthony von Leeuwenhoek between 2009 and 2019, I personally arranged either the peer review and editing or certainly the final copy editing of more than 800 species descriptions. And one of the things that I can confirm, bacterial species descriptions, is that they are mostly appallingly dull and they are sort of dull checklists of, you know, trivial phenotypic tests. One of the ones I always single out, not entirely fairly, is, you know, how important really is it whether one organism is positive or negative for cysteine or lamidase? You know, those kind of miniature biochemical tests. And so modernising require, I think, shedding that, that, that approach to, to publication of taxonomic papers. We, we are still very much uh, with a lot of taxonomists building careers from a one colony is one species is one paper. It's a sort of assembly line of you pick the colony off the plate. If it's 16 sRNA looks sufficiently different to other known species, you, you do this battery of tests and then you write it up in a six page paper that requires an editor. It requires two peer reviewers. And, and, and it requires an enormous amount of human energy and effort and time to, to get that paper published. And the reality is that most individual species are not that exciting. It's clear if you look at what's written down, the rules are actually very few and far between. There's just a huge corpus of behaviour that, that has sprung up, the way in which editors and peer reviewers interpret things. But none of that's, there's no official taxonomy. There's no official approach to taxonomy. And 
when we were working on the chicken gut a couple of years ago, we, we were working with a Haran Oren, who's an ex expert on bacterial nomenclature. And I said, we've got a load of uncultured things we want to name, but we've also got 30 things that are cultured and we want to name them. And he said, well, all it says in the code is you've got to provide a description. It doesn't tell you what kind of description. You just have to provide a, you have to say what the type strain is and you have to come up with some kind of circumscription. And so I just adopted a very terse description, which said, you know, it's basically, this is the type strain and anything else in the species has to fit within an ANI of 95%. And that went through peer review and it's published. We did have to deposit those strains to get them validly named. And that process is still ongoing. I mean, they've been deposited. It's getting the validation of the deposition is taking time. Uh, well over a year after we sent them off to the type culture collections, we're getting that we're, we're, we're finally going to get there in the end. But uh, I think that it's clear if you look at both taxonomy and nomenclature, what is what passes as practice are the opinions of, of, of peer reviewers and editors. They are not written down anywhere as rules that have to be followed. And we can take a blowtorch to this. You know, it, it, in a sense, this is like the Reformation. A reformation is needed. We, we get rid of all that stuff. And we go back to the fundamentals. The code says you have to do this. The code says you've got to describe the thing. Here's a description. You've got to provide a, a, a derivation of the name. Okay. You know, you just describe the derivation of the name. You don't, you don't have to go into all that arcane Latin and decide whether Petra is a Latin root or a Greek root or whatever. You, you just say from the from classical roots, meaning this and that. You can do all that. So I, I think that my view is that we, we we should stop giving time to these people, these old style people. And 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 if a journal doesn't want to publish a paper because it's got the wrong peer reviewers and the wrong editor, publish it in another journal that's more open-minded. Let's just go around the problem. This problem will be solved as these people retire and, and the young the new generation come in that just say, why do we need to do all that stuff about quinones and all that nonsense? We don't. It's nonsense. Yeah. I, I have a paper in IGSEM last month making a lot of those points, it must be said. Uh, and I think actually one of the things I looked up earlier, and I think Mark may be familiar with this, but would in, this is a title of a paper by a person called Susan Ranner, who is a fungal taxonomist, as it happens. But the title of her paper from 2016, I think, is a really useful answer in a single sentence to the question Andrew asked about how do we modernize and, and Renner's paper is entitled a return to Linnaeus's focus on diagnosis not description the use of DNA characters in the formal naming of species now and for me that encapsulates in a sentence well sentence with a sub sentence everything we've just talked about that the genomic DNA is sufficient and to to allow the placing of taxa within a classification and the description that goes along with naming things can be a very brief diagnosis. I, Mark mentioned the ones he used in his chicken microbiome paper, you know, and, and we are starting to see papers come through that say, you know, the classification of this or the, or the novelty of this taxon is demonstrated by phylogenomic analysis, those kind of statements. And that is, for me, speaking personally, as the information to accompany the giving of a name. Yeah, a short while ago, only a few years ago, our clinical colleagues used to be quite sneering when they said, oh, that's just a genomo species, as if, you know, oh, there's multiple genomo species of Acinetobacter. We can't distinguish them in the lab, so it doesn't matter. That's fundamentally to misunderstand it. Everything is a genomo species, and genomes have triumphed over 
you know, the phonetic classifications belong in the baggage of, in, in the dustbin of history. And, and it's time to move on. That, you know, basically we're just making manifest Darwin's dream, Darwin's vision. And, and those who wish to look at phenotypes are the kind of people that would have said, well, well, really, we should be calling a whale a fish. Come on, it feels right, doesn't it? No, it doesn't feel right. It's wrong. And we should stop doing it. Genomes are the only measure that we use. I have to qualify. I mean, we have to give Phil a chance to speak. We have to qualify it's not genomes. It's a subset of the genes within genomes that are useful for this purpose. And we do have this problem of horizontal gene transfer. If we imagine that these genomes were lorries, we're not classifying on the whole lorry. We're not classifying on the cargo. We're classifying on the cab. The thing, you know, the small amount that is actually classified and makes a sensible tree of life classification. But nonetheless, that is fundamentally a boiled down version of the genome. What, what about you, Phil? What do you think on all of this? Well, I agree very much with what's being said. I think it's actually a really exciting time to be in taxonomy. I do believe I have you on a record in the bill is saying, I have a tweet from you saying taxonomy is dead, let it die. I use that actually in talks, but <laughs> I would say... I would say very much the opposite. I would say we're really on the cusp of, of getting the job done properly. And there are a few growing pains, as we've seen from the Twitter storm in the last couple of days. But I really am looking forward to getting a full description of the microbial diversity we share the planet with. And I think we're heading in that direction in a very strong way. I'm very positive about the whole thing. All right, excellent. I think it's time for a little break. We'll be back to talk more about the genomics side of things and how that integrates with this and some of these recent changes to the nomenclature that people have been discussing. I want to thank our esteemed guests, Professor Ian, Phil and Mark, and we'll see you in the next part of our holiday special on the Microbinfi podcast. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at Microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.